Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Quickly and get through. Okay, <clears throat> we welcome you back. Our topic next week will be Change a River, Change a Community, Factoring in the People Equation. What can be done to minimize serious flood damage by Dr. Tom Johnston? And we have uh, SACPA is co sponsoring a meeting with the Member of Parliament, Charmaine Borg. This will be um, on cybersecurity on September 14th, Saturday, 3 30 at CASA. It's a, the Member of Parliament, Charmaine Borg, will be presenting a session on cybersecurity at, at CASA, CASA, the new art, art building, September 14th at 3.30. Okay. If you have any suggestions to improve SACPA, there's a suggestion box uh, in the lobby for ideas or complaints. You ready? Gentlemen, thank you. Okay, uh, just a couple of other things. Uh, It was brought to my attention that in all the city of Lethbridge, there are only three elected women, and all three are here today. We have two from council, Liz Iwaskiw and Bridget Mearns, and our MLA, Bridget Pasteur. So thank you for attending. Now, I hope you've really put on your thinking caps and come up with some questions. Let's welcome back Dr. Melanie Thomas. Why does federal politics remain the domain of men? Thank you. Welcome her back, people. Hi, Melanie. I'm Henning Mundell. Um... One little comment and then a, a question. In your chart on the um, knowledge differences, you showed that there was really no difference in practical knowledge between men and women, 3.4, 3.3, on a scale of uh, 0 to 6. Okay, so they're equal, but isn't it concerning how low those values are? For both, my other my other question really relates to: Have you had a chance to look at while the questions can't be the same because of the different health systems involved, but other democracies do we see similar kind of things, or are, is there any country in, where in the literature you've seen quite opposite or quite different, divergent uh, results? Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, To address your comment first, it is concerning that uh, all levels of political knowledge are as low as what they are. I mean, even if the political leaders are spectacularly unrepresentative, they still make laws, so we ought to know who they are. Um, And 
yeah, that says a lot. I don't know whether or not having these, because this is a student sample that we're using here, um, I don't know if part of this is because people are young and they just kind of haven't needed to go to the legal aid or to go to the rental board or something along those lines. Um, so it could just be life cycle sorts of effects that as people age, they might get to know more about government programs and services. But overall, it is concerning that on average, people are getting half the questions wrong. Um, the thing about other democracies, so that's what this study did, is that they um, compared women and men in a number of countries. So one of the things that they had come out with was that um, Canadian and um, Americans scored the worst. Um, Canadians were second worst. Uh, so one of the common comments that the study's author had made was that Norwegian women outperform Canadian men. I would argue that this has more to do with the kinds of questions that they asked than it does um, about, I don't think it tells us anything systematic about how much people know around the world. Again, with the Copenhagen Conference example, it's in Norway's backyard that this happens. Presumably that means it's going to be reported in the media more, which means that if you just happen to be in like the public environment, you would be able to osmose that, you would get more of that information in some countries compared to others. Uh, I'm not at all surprised that North American scores on this particular set of questions coming from Europe was, was lower. Um, what's not been developed is a valid knowledge scale that actually taps that practical element that goes from country to country. It, it, political knowledge is something that doesn't cross country borders very well. Um, yeah. It's something that we could, that we need to be working on. I'm, I'm not sure how to get around that, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things where the moment that you see a scale that's translated from country to country to country, the question is, well, it doesn't mean the same thing in Canada versus Norway versus Japan, right? Which is the difficulty with it. Yeah. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Thomas, for a, uh, for a really interesting uh, presentation uh, on your work and your research. Um, looking at that picture that's on the screen right now, the uh, word that really stands out in my mind is the word ignorant. Uh, the fact that that would be the approach of whoever wrote that particular passage um, without realizing, I think, that, uh, that maybe the reason that one of the reasons that uh, women are not as involved in politics in Canada is because they're more intelligent. <laughs> Uh, and realize the amount, uh, a tremendous amount of responsibility and so on as it affects their lives and, and their families. What do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, so what you're picking, on, picking up on is something in the literature that's known as rational disengagement. Uh, and that can take a number of forms. Uh, one that I hear most often is uh, the benevolent sexism form of it, is that women are just too good and too pure to get into the mud and rough and tumble of politics. Um, and to be honest, as somebody who studies politics, I don't know if that means that I like getting muddy. I don't know. Um, so this is, so I'm less, uh, um, I don't like that particular framing of it, but the rational disengagement argument is the idea of the, we know that this is an area that um, is biased against us, so why would we spend a lot of time trying to get engaged with it? Um, this is something that is often used, um, most often I've seen it used with African Americans and electoral politics in the United States. I think this is a, um, and I've also seen it used for individual level electoral behavior, so it's takes a lot of, it costs a lot in terms of time and resources to know a whole lot about politics or to learn a lot of things. Um, so it's rational just to use shortcuts and step back. Um, 
I think what's more compelling when we look at women's underrepresentation, though, is that there are gender differences in how you actually get people into the process. So everybody usually needs to be asked if they want to run, recruited by a political party. Uh, women need to be asked more often than men. Men are going to be much more likely to volunteer themselves, even though a small number of them do. Uh, so part of it, I, I still go back to the demand side, where political parties actually want to have a diverse candidate slate, and they want legislatures to represent the population. They've got to do a better job of actually going out and asking people from historically underrepresented groups to actually, and, and ask them um, repeatedly if they, um, if they want to run. I know my own experience was that <laughs> I was badgered <laughs> into it, and then I was outed as a potential candidate before I had actually, like, firmly said yes. Um, those of you who know Shannon Phillips, that was all her. Um, but she was, she's a good organizer. She knows how to do her job. My mom will know that once I said yes, I, I badgered her over and over and over again, including in public, <laughs> which is when she finally caved. Um, so this is the thing. I think what's more compelling is that recruitment techniques have to be different for women, in part because they are rationally disengaged from the process. Um, the other thing I should note is that the word ignorant, that was used by the academic study. So this the National Post gets a buy on this one. It was the study authors that used the word. Uh, and we call that overreaching beyond the data for a reason, because the, the, the results don't support that conclusion. Uh, Trevor Page. Hi, Melanie. Thank you for sharing the results of your research with us. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering whether you have shared the results with the heads of any of Canada's political parties, either at the federal, provincial, or in fact with riding association heads? And if so, what has their reaction been? Uh, we haven't yet, especially not this first study, um, where we talk about uh, this part. People know that we've done the research. I know people, um, because we wanted to get the actual um, New Democrat policy, uh, we, we spoke to people within the NDP to make sure that we could actually get the full text of that correct so that we were citing it properly. Uh, and I will be speaking about this particular research at the NDP convention that's happening provincially this fall. Um, to be honest, uh, every time we approach a lot of the other political parties, they're not at all interested in talking to academics about anything. So the Conservative Party of Canada is especially difficult to access in terms of academic research, both in terms of actually providing results as well as actually doing any kind of analysis on the party itself. Um, we've not, yeah, like I said, we've not done anything more beyond this. Uh, one of the things that we want to do as part of our plan once we go further along with the research that was the third study is that part of our knowledge mobilization plan is to speak to editors and um, bureau chiefs for national media outlets, especially if we can, when our future research that we have planned involves using very realistic media cues. And so if we can find that media articles and certain media presentations have a very particular effect on individual Canadians, including suppressing their performance when they're given a political knowledge test or suppressing their self-reported interest in politics and the like, we think it's important that we go to media people and say, you need to develop best practices to stop this because it has, it actually has problematic effects on the population that you are speaking to. And as media, that's part of um, what you are supposed to be avoiding when you do that. Like they've got norms of professionalism that, that don't cue into that. So we're more focused on speaking to the media about that. Um, less so about parties. We'll see what the reaction is um, later this year. So <clears throat> yeah. you seem to be implying that 
poli uh, the political world, however, is not that keen to uh, change. I mean, if you're going for a media campaign before you speak to the people that actually can make a difference. Uh, so there's that. Um, I'm not, like I say, I'm not sure the people who can make a difference necessarily want to hear us. At least I would say consistently across the board, we have no guarantee that. Some, some people might be more open to it. I think parties on the political left would be, certainly, but I don't get the impression that if we wanted to speak to, systematically speak to conservative associations across the country, that they would be interested in this. I would be thrilled if I were incorrect in that assessment. Um, and I would be delighted to share the results of this research to any and all political party who was interested with it. Dr. Thomas, I, I was uh, flabbergasted to know, I'm sorry, my name is Frank Toth. Uh, I'm normally the tail ender of the questionnaires, but uh, I was flabbergasted when I heard that you actually teach in Dr. Harper's old alma mater, the University of Calgary, that he personally donated $27 million last spring to the Friends of Science and Earth located in your university that you, of all people, are teaching there. Secondly, a little statement that uh, I, was, I was asked many, many times to run for council again and I was representing the taxpayer, uh, my veteran buddies, and womanhood. Now, can you give us a picture, financial picture, of the, of the financial second-class Canadian citizen woman who are, pension-wise, really shafted? They're having a heck of a time holding on to their homes because their remittance of pensions it's not nearly what it is for a married woman. Can you enlighten us on that, please? And thank you for, for coming. Okay. We need you, okay? Yeah. Great. Thank you for your questions and for your comments. Um, I don't know if this is the academic rank ego part of me, but Stephen Harper only has a master's degree, so he's not Dr. Harper. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Every time I, like, on my credit cards and everything like that and business profiles, I'm always noted as Dr. Thomas. And the people who still call me Miss all the time, it's it's a personal pet peeve. So I shouldn't be territorial about the title, but I am. Um, the interesting thing to note about my department at the University of Calgary is that we actually have a gender and politics specialty that we promote through to the graduate level. So most of the PhD students that we train are actually gender and politics specialists. Um, I, it was made very clear to me with my hire that part of my job is to bolster that expertise. Um, it's interesting to note that, uh, though it's not popularly understood, we are a hub for the study of gender and politics in Canada, much more so than any other political science department in the country. Uh, that said, the University of Calgary did have a uh, reputation for being a certain kind of, doing a certain kind of Canadian politics scholarship, which they did well, admittedly, um, for a lot longer. So my job is to just publish more so that people know about this side of what the department does. Um, the financial status of women. Yeah, uh, this is where we've got this other bit here on the economy here, uh, what you're talking about, what you're talking, this bit has to do again with how trends change over time, especially as relates to age. I think a lot of people, especially young women, 
or a lot of people look at the economic position of young women and they think that everything is just fine and that we no longer have to worry about these issues. Um, this doesn't address the fact that women's movement into the labor force was a latter part of the 20th century phenomenon, particularly women with children. So this was something that happened 1976 going forward at that. So any woman who um, wasn't part of the labor force during that particular time or only came to the labor force later, they won't have had the same ability to build up financial equity on their own. Um, they wouldn't have been paying into the Canada Pension Plan at the same rate as somebody who had been working for their whole life. They wouldn't be paying into a private pension plan. And this is one of the reasons why divorce remains one of the drivers that puts women of a certain age and generation into abject poverty. Um, uh, this is one of the other things that's really concerning about lifting the age of retirement and also talking about how old age security and the like isn't going to be necessarily accessible. Um, this is what I find concerning, especially for, yeah, because these, these things are gendered and they mean different things for people who have different kinds of personal arrangements in their life, married or not, how many dependents they have or not, how, if they are healthy and well or not, all these other sorts of things. Um, the general rule of thumb, though, remains that women don't have economic equity relative to men, which means if there's a financial situation that isn't good for individuals, generally speaking, odds are good that it's not going to be very, it's going to be worse for women. And then the other thing that ought to be noted as well is that it's going to be worse for people who are in other historically underrepresented groups, so racialized minorities. And then the interaction between um, other, these interest, in these particular groups, so racialized minorities who are women, they still, th those degrees of inequality are much more severe for the groups as you kind of whittle your way down. Leona Jacobs, um, I'm up here to illustrate that there's women engaged in political. <laughs> um, and this is perhaps a theoretical question because I'm not sure it's not directly applicable to Canada, at least yet. Um, but to what extent do you think electoral reform, in particular proportional representation, might change some of this scene? Uh... Thank you for your question, in part because I'm glad to be getting a question from women that want to talk about women, which is great. Um, the conventional wisdom used to be that uh, electoral reform was one of these cure-alls that would um, kind of solve all of these representational problems, not unlike how minority parliaments were seen to be cure-alls for the democratic malaise that we saw in the House of Commons, and then we saw a series of minority parliaments that didn't really fix that. Um, there has been recent research that's come out um, that has tried to measure just how much electoral system effects matter for women's representation. And they find that actually having proportional representation doesn't matter nearly as much as what people once thought. What that kind of system does allow, though, is it takes that zero-sum element out of the equation, which means that um, you can convince people to take a risk on an unconventional candidate, or that the argument is easier for, for something when it's an auto-zero-sum kind of calculation, like our system is, when it is not, like proportional representation or the single transferable vote. Anytime you're electing more than one person per district, that's... So for me, I see district magnitude as being probably more important than the actual formula that gets used to decide which people on the ballot get to go forward as elected. Um, the other thing that's important about proportional representation is that it allows for the successful application of gender quotas uh, for women's representation. So I remember when I first heard about quotas, I didn't like them because I thought that 
I had this silly idea about women ought to be able to get in on their own merit, and I didn't want to leg up, and this, that, and the other thing. And then once you understand the actual like biases that are present, then you these measures actually they do become a lot more favorable. Um, Having a PR system doesn't mean that you'll be able to put a quota in, but the places that have done quotas most successfully often are PR countries. Sweden applies the quota voluntarily to parties in 1973. They've got a gender equal parliament by 1994. Interestingly, the self-reported gender gap in political interest doesn't exist there, um, and it was whittled away slowly over time as they elected more women to their national legislature. Uh, Sweden is the only country where we have the data to test this. We don't know if this is... Sweden being odd, or if this is a trend that the rest of us can learn from. Um, but it's worth noting that what worked there was less the PR and more that they were able to use a quota. Thank you, Melanie, for your presentation. Uh, my name is Ralph Hemsel, and I'm wondering uh, <clears throat> if there is an area of research that might lie in the fact the presence of so many women premiers of provinces in uh, Canada. And what do you think you might discover? Uh, I'm really glad that you asked that. Thank you for that question. Um, what makes Canada really unique on this particular thing is that we have a federal system, which means that 86% of Canadians have a woman political executive, like their political executive is headed by a woman, 86% of the country. Um, this means that we've got a federal bias here. So this zero that represents um, not having a woman prime minister, at the moment, it should be right about here if we were looking at provinces. Um, the interesting thing there is uh, something called the glass cliff hypothesis. So this is the idea that um, you get a woman leader when this context is such that um, men might, might not want to do it anymore. Uh, and this fits a lot of the women party leaders that we see now. So going from West East, um, Christy Clark uh, took over from Gordon Campbell when Gordon Campbell was in the midst of a scandal and the party was not expected to do well and she wasn't expected to win the election and that she did was surprising. Um, Alberta is the odd result. Again, the Alberta PCs were not expected to win and so when they're not expected to win, they elect a woman as party leader. Um, interestingly, the, what we hear from inside the Alberta PCs is that most of the people who actually want to pull the strings from the back um, weren't participating in that particular point, that there's a certain part of the party that has just left this particular legislative caucus and is waiting for context to change before they kind of come back in. Danielle Smith is the odd case. Um, she was expected to win, uh, and she was elected to her position um, when the party was doing well. And she ran against men. So Danielle Smith is one of these ones where she doesn't really fit this hypothesis that parties elect women as leaders when the party's going, when they're kind of going down in flames. Danielle Smith is the odd case. Um, Kathleen Wynne, party is unpopular, not expected to win. Pauline Marois, party really didn't have very many options at that point, but she was expected, she should have won a majority government, and she didn't, and she has a difficult time managing her cabinet. Uh, and probably there, there's a lot of things that seem like they're very odd coming out of Quebec. And the first question that you ask is, is this something that she needs to do to manage 
cabinet so that people do not leave is usually the question that gets asked. The other one who's interesting is Kathy Dunderdale in Newfoundland and Labrador. And Danny Williams was so popular and had such a massive personal vote that they didn't know what was going to happen once he retired. And there was talk, even though she won a very comfortable majority, there was talk that she might not do well just because they didn't know what was going on. Um, what will be interesting will be to see what happens, say, with Alison Redford's leadership review in the fall. She's not anticipated to win. If she has to step down, what does that leadership contest look like? Um, it will be interesting to see what happens when Kathleen Wynne faces election in Ontario. Christy Clark, this was surprising, right? So this is, um, all this to say, nobody's really researching this yet, and I know that this probably ought to be, like, top of my list, things to look at, because th this is one of the things that makes Canada a very unique case, because we've got this stuff going on at the provincial level um, that fits with some theories, but doesn't fit with others. Yeah. Douglas Mitchell, uh, just a quick question to change gears. You were rightly dismissive of the block. Right. However, I'm interested in the uh, francophone woman's psyche and whether or not there is something there that they are putting forward a larger number of candidates. Uh, and I don't know if you have figures on that, having discussed this with your colleague in Laval, yeah. but it might be interesting, because uh, having lived briefly there and worked in the province, um, I know the, it is a different mindset. It is a wonderful, fabulous, totally different place. I did my PhD in Montreal, so I spent five great years in Quebec. Um, I think this is actually less about francophones and more actually about the bloc. Uh, we would see this a different pattern for the liberals uh, in Quebec um, and for the New Democrats in Quebec now as well, uh, though we post to, we weren't kind of expecting the NDP to do so well in Quebec in 2011, so we didn't, that's not really part of this research. Mm -hmm. um, but the pattern is unique for the bloc, it's not present for the um, Quebec caucus of the Liberal Party of Canada. What we suspect is going on is that there is a schism or a division in the feminist movement and the women's movement in Quebec. Um, federalist women tend to subscribe to a particular form of liberal feminism that isn't, um, it's fairly standard. It's the idea that you, we want equal pay, we want childcare, you know, fairly standard sorts of things. Um, the s national movement and the separatist movement is aligned with a very different kind of feminism in Quebec. It's more radical, and it says there's no... They, they have slogans that say things along the lines of there's no... There can be no freedom or emancipation for women without the emancipation of Quebec. So it's a much harder line, and it, takes, it comes from a different theoretical background, and it has different theoretical and policy implications as a result. Um, that may be the reason why we see these differences. Um, it may not be. Um, it certainly isn't reflected necessarily in the PQ, though the other thing that we should note is that the Bloc and the PQ, they shared um, candidate pools. So this usually isn't the case, but in Quebec, you can use the National Assembly as a stepping stone into federal politics and vice versa. There's much more um, sharing that goes on between those two parties than happens um, at, in other provinces across provincial and federal levels as well. So those are the two things that we cite as reasons why maybe the bloc does this, but even so, it's a pattern that we weren't expecting to see. Hi, my name is Liz Iwaskiw. Um I wonder if you would speak to the impact that family obligations have on politics, because it, uh, I have a theory that there would be more women in politics if they had wives at home. <laughs> 
I think there would be more women professors if we had wives at home, too. Um, <laughs> sorry. So this is one of these projects. I didn't talk about it here, but it's something that I'm doing with SACPA's own Lisa Lambert. Uh, and we are looking, we have a large project that's looking at the impact of gender or how gender and parental status interact when it comes to everything about politics, attitudes, participation, recruitment, legislative careers and the like. What we look at is we look at um, current members of parliament in Canada. We find that men are more likely than women to be parents, though women, there's still a lot of women politicians who are parents in um, uh, in the House of Commons, the real difference comes to whether or not they feel comfortable communicating that to their constituents. So one of the things that's very clear is that if you are a man uh, and you've got, you're, like, you can communicate that you are normal. This is the literature's word. It's, it's normal. You cue that you're heterosexual. You cue that you're a traditional breadwinner. And you show these photos of your brood. And you can see this, it shows with, um, especially with grandparents, is that, and they actually say, they send out a Christmas card every year with a picture of their ever-increasing family because they think that their constituents like to see how much their family that they are the patriarch of is growing. Uh, women can't do this, not to the same extent. Uh, what we heard from women is that they... Um, had safety concerns if their children were of a certain age that they didn't want people necessarily to know that they had small children. Men did not say this. One of the most interesting comments actually came from one of the interviews, uh, who was a, interviewees who was a man. He was a conservative member from Ontario. He has served in provincial government as a cabinet minister. And he said, you know, for women, I think it's gendered. It's usually quite snarly, his word. Um, if you see a woman who's in cabinet and that she has small children, often the reaction they get is, well, I bet the taxpayers are paying for a nanny or for a babysitter in her office. You would never hear that directed at a man who had small children. We, we joke off-color, like, but when Peter McKay um, and Pierre Trudeau, oh, not, not Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, when, they, when their, wives, their wives are, Peter McKay just had a baby, Justin Trudeau's wife is expecting, it, the media frame is very much he shoots, he scores. It's not... <laughs> Sorry, it's it's crass, but but that's what it looks like, and it's not the same. There and there are there are members of the current cabinet who are divorced women with small children, and unless you dig really hard for it, you would not know this. So this is not to say that family obligation this family obligations are a problem, and there's research from the states that demonstrates that distance to commute to the state legislature, at least at the state level, dampens women's. Um, or suppresses the number of women or has a negative effect on the number of women who run. Uh, and certainly it would be very difficult to have a small family here and commute to Ottawa or even to Edmonton. That said, even if it, that's not an issue, the way that women with children are seen, they get like, well, who's looking after your kids? Yeah. Stuff like that. Like it's... Yeah. That, those still, those, those traditional ideas about what mothers ought to be and how that relates to electoral politics still hold much, much strongly, more strongly than I think we anticipated. Okay, so can I'm I the last one. Um, can you be very quick? Can uh, I take both questions at the same time? Maybe? Okay, both questions at the same time. Very both, quick. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Melanie, thanks for being here. Mary Shillington. Uh, I'm interested. Uh, parties are busy selecting, uh, recruiting candidates for the two, uh, 2015 uh, federal election. What do you think is going to happen with the number of women running, and, and how can that be improved? Okay. 
Thank you, Melanie, for your great presentation. I'm Rena Wass, and I'm going to be running for council this fall. Um, how does your research maybe translate to a local level, and do you have any advice for women to, uh, you know, up some of those scores? Thank you. Uh, both great questions, uh, and they fit together nicely, so hopefully I will answer them very quickly. Um, things that we didn't know about... Um, uh, the number of women who were nominated in federal politics. The high watermark was 1993, and we didn't come close to it again until the last election. This says something. 1993 was an earthquake election where the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada went from a majority to two seats. And it's not surprising to me that in that earthquake election, we had the most women nominated as candidates until very recently. Um, the easiest way to increase the number of women running is for local party associations to go and recruit women. Um, there are Equal Voice is one of the advocacy organizations that is focused directly at this. Um, I am certain that there are women of all political stripes in every community who would make excellent candidates. Um, one of the things that we do know is that if you have a riding association president who is a woman, that riding association is more likely to nominate a woman. Um, in part because people go and they talk to people who are like them. So if you're a part of a writing association and you want a woman candidate, one of the ways to do it might be to elect a president who's a woman because then her professional network will get kicked in and you might be able to recruit from different areas than before. The interesting thing about local politics is that there's this conventional wisdom that local politics is much more friendly to women's issues. Um, local politics is more friendly to women's travel schedule and how they balance family obligations, certainly, but it is not more friendly to women as a general rule. There are about as many women in local politics as there are in other forms of government. Sometimes there are no women in local politics. Uh, I don't know any municipality that is dominated by women. This says something, right? Um, where we do see a gap is with how professional a local council is. So if it is full-time, it tends to be... Um, more hostile to women. Calgary is a great example of this, where uh, my current city councillor, I refuse to call her an alderman, my current city councillor uh, has experiences very hostile campaigns, and she currently has a stalker and is potentially un currently under 24-hour police protection. Um, I don't know an MP that has to go through this, or an MLA, but I'm not surprised that this is happening at city politics. Again, professional city council that where it's a full-time job. Um, in local politics... Because it tends to be less partisan, one of the good things is that you can actually run on an issue-based campaign, and it actually means something different than to say that you're running on an issue-based campaign for a political party, right? So there's that as well. Um, but I, the one thing, I hate to end on a bit of a downer, but the one thing I do caution women getting into local politics with is that it can be as bad, if not worse, as the, the worst that you see on the news for other levels of government. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Thomas.